Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 10. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. Last time we saw that the blessings and the cursings upon the sons and the one grandson of Noah were from God. And that they had a view to the future of their distant progeny. Thus, God being the God of Shem was made manifest hundreds of years later, about 400 years later, when God chose Abraham. And that he promised to bring the seed that would bless the whole world through Abraham. And that those in Abraham's line would also be blessed as long as each one of them believed and repented. They couldn't presume Upon the covenant. They had to personally each one make it their own. And God promised to bless them. And so this was the blessing upon Shem. When God would choose Abraham. Proving himself to be. Showing himself to be therefore the God of Shem. As he would bring that promised seed through Abraham's line. And God became their God. And they became God's people as God had foretold in last week's text. And so also the cursing of Canaan. Came about 400 years after Abraham. After the different Canaanite tribes had lived in the land, had conquered the land, had ruled in the land, had experienced much temporal blessing in the land, but also had sinned grossly and infamously to the point where God had said they had filled up their sins and the land would vomit them out. And that was the curse of Canaan. Not that they had descended from Canaan, but they had sinned in the likeness of the sin of Canaan, which we saw would have been the exemplary of what Ham had done. And so the curse comes upon Canaan, but fulfilled in his descendants when they sin. Not again because they were his children, but because they personally filled up those sins. And that was foretold, again, in this curse that God gave. And also the blessings would come about upon Japheth's descendants... And that would not happen for nearly 2,500 years. For the most part, Japheth's descendants are, are absent from Scripture. You don't see them a lot. They're up in Europe. They're barbarians. But they get blessed when the gospel goes out, when Jesus sends the disciples into all the world. As we sang and as we read in our call to worship, that even then, back in the time of David, there was a, there was a foreseeing of the time when all the nations would fear God, when all the nations would worship God. And that was the blessing on Japheth again, which would come about. And so today's text takes us chronologically past next week's text, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is really a flashback into the middle of our chapter this morning. And so I'm happy to go through the entire chapter. I know you're all diligently doing your daily devotions from Genesis chapter 10. So we will notice, though, that this chapter is really important for three particular reasons. The faithfulness and the goodness of God, the accuracy and the truth of the Bible, and the sinfulness of of man. We see them all in our text. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for this word. Sometimes, Lord God, we in our flesh find your word tedious and difficult. We don't see necessarily the, the immediate meaning of it. And yet, Lord God, it's all from you. It's all important to us. It all has a purpose. It all reveals who you are. And especially, Lord God, in certain ways, this text today is unique. And I pray that you would show that to each one of your children this morning and that they would be blessed 
by this word, for it's from you for that purpose. And so answer our prayers this morning according to the merits again of our Lord Jesus Christ in his name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 10. This is the very word of Almighty God. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama, Sabteca, and the sons of Raama were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. Mitzrayim begot Ludim and Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their nations, or according to their languages, rather, in their lands and in their nations. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber the brother of Japheth, the elder. The sons of Shem were Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And the sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan begot Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go toward Safar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families. Of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning. Wow, that's a difficult text to read. I was going to have Denny Baker come up and read it. I know he, <laughs> he would have enjoyed that. 
My first point this morning is the accuracy of the Bible. The accuracy of the Bible. Boy, does this text show us the accuracy of the Bible. It's texts like these often that are somewhat tedious and difficult for us and we kind of skip over really quick in our devotions and we just kind of mumble through the names because we don't know how to pronounce them. We don't know who they are. And that, that's a real shame because we should not have forgotten who they are. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that we do know who they are. They're just not um, written about anymore. They're forgotten intentionally, as it were, by the scholarly and academic world. Uh, It's interesting to me because this chapter is viewed in scholarly circles like the rest of the Old Testament, particularly the books of Moses and particularly the... the, um, book of Genesis, according to what's been called the JEDP hypothesis, which is just a fancy hypothesis that says that the Bible was uh, compiled by various schools of editors and redactors, really four major schools over centuries that each one coming to the text with their own purposes and intentions rewrites and edits and loses some things and adds other things and keeps changing the text. You know, over again, hundreds of years. And that's the JDEP JDEP hypothesis in a nutshell. The funny thing is that there is not a single book in the world that's ever been written that way. We know that. There's no uh, book that's been written over centuries by four different schools of concerns and, and ideas that are written into a text that itself mind you, is believed to be the very word of God is so sacred that if a scribe messes up one letter in the text, the whole manuscript is destroyed when they would make copies. And yet at the same time, we are to believe that these texts that were so revered as the unchangeable perfect word of God are continually changed and edited and updated by people and the people that have the word that have been taught to memorize the word all of their lives somehow don't notice that it's continuing to be changed over and over again again no no book's been written that way in any culture from any people from any group or religion that's never been done it's never happened the whole concept is absolutely absurd and in fact when it comes to the scriptures themselves there's no actual evidence of any of the JEDP theory. In other words, there's not a single scrap of a manuscript that would show the uh, interpolation of different schools of thought changing the text. There's no manuscript trail whatsoever. There's no mention in contemporary authors or uh, other manus- other sources that would say that this happened. There's no recollection of it. There's no tradition of it. There's no prior sources. There's no contemporary sources. No one ever dreamed of this whole theory until the geniuses of the 18th and 19th century made it up from whole cloth because they can't accept that the Bible is the word of God but that, in fact, this process of change actually continued all the way up until the 4th or 5th century B.C. I mean, that's how delusional these madmen are. And this, this is what scholarship is in the world today. If you go to any school in the world today and you study the Old Testament, they'll present this nonsense as fact. And it is nonsense. And I have no uh, 
inclination to say that it is anything less than that. Now, the structure of our chapter actually is a powerful argument against the JEDP theory, as if we need to argue against something that actually has absolutely no evidence in favor of it, but that's the way the decks are stacked. And so the form of the chapter, if you'll notice, has been uh, recognized as a chiasm, a chiastic structure. Chi is the Greek word for X, right? And a chiasm has a structure that starts with like one, two, three, four, and then it finishes with four, three, two, one. Okay, so let, that w- whether it's a verse, a passage, a whole chapter, this whole chapter is a chiasm, and you can see it in the structure of the chapter itself. And so verse 1 mentions the sons of Noah, that's our first point. Then it mentions, mentions Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then backing out through the very next thing you get, verse 2, the sons of Japheth. See, we're going backwards now. Then you get the sons of Ham going backwards now. Then you get the sons of Shem going backwards now. And in the very last verse of our chapter, the sons of Noah. So sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, Japheth. Ham, Shem, sons of Noah. It's a perfect chiasm. Now that's not possible to make unless the whole chapter is created intentionally that way. How can that be over hundreds of years with different redactors, editors, compilers, adding, changing, whatever, and yet the whole chapter is a uniform structured whole? But it's really not so much in the form that we refute the nonsense of the modern scholars. It's in the content of this chapter. This chapter has been regularly asserted or or claimed, it's been regularly claimed and asserted about this chapter because this genealogical table is so accurate that Moses couldn't possibly have have written it. It's so accurate, in fact, that it's been said by one commentary that it lies beyond the geographical horizon of the Mosaic age. It's that accurate. And so think about that. Think about that idea that this chapter is so accurate that it couldn't be the word of God. This chapter is so accurate that it can't be written the way in which Jewish and Christian traditions say that the scriptures were written by God inspiring man to have written it that way. And again, no manuscript evidence of any of this uh, uh, tampering with the text. One of the most scholarly commentaries I use, the New International Commentary of the Old Testament published by Erdmans, um, says this about this text. Such a table of nations is unique to Old Testament literature. Neither the hieroglyphic nor the cuneiform worlds produced a parallel document, end quote. That's really interesting. There's not a single like document to Genesis chapter 10 in all of the ancient world. Nothing's like it. Not in the Chaldean, the Babylonian, the Sumerian, the Hittite, all of the literature that we have of ancient peoples, and we do have a lot, there's nothing like this. Nothing compares to this. If you wanted to find out about Genesis chapter 10, do a search on the table of nations. That's what this chapter has been called by the scholarly world, the table of nations. There is no other in any ancient relic or tradition or manuscript uh, of any ancient people. They have their own little genealogies for their kings, often to prove their royal houses. But no one, no people, no nation, no religion ever 
took upon the grand project of presenting the, the entire genealogy of all of the human race. That happens only here in this chapter. There's nothing else quite like this chapter. And there are so many outside corroborations for the information that's in this chapter. And so we know historians um, such as Tacitus, Josephus, Herodotus, Thucydides, Xenophon, Livy, and even Modern, more modern uh, middle-aged monks like Nennius of Britain, Joffrey of Monmouth. Of course, they're rejected. Any, this is what you'll find in academic circles. Any Christian monk who ever made anything, he's biased and not to be trusted. And so you, they always reject them. But going back to these pagan historians, um, these names and these places and these uh, persons are known. We know who they are. The majority of them we know. A lot of them we can make probable guesses, and there's a few that are obscure, uh, and that's just in the literature that the scholars accept. Okay, there's all sorts of records that show these same names. For example, when there are Anglo-Saxon chronic chronologies that have six royal houses, and they all go back to this person named Noe, or Noah, without an H. In some of the European gene- genealogies, uh, we found that Japheth has, uh, has a variant uh, a name, Skeef or Skef or Saskif, and you find that in genealogies, and we know that's Japheth now. It's been identified. Japheth is Saskif of the ancient European peoples. Uh, Irish genealogies, uh, ancient genealogies, still have Japheth listed as their father who came um, Chinese records of the Miyatsu people describe a certain Nua who had three sons, Lo Han, Lo Shen, and Jefu. Isn't that interesting? Um, what's it? But the scholars, again, they don't go back to this. They don't look at this as anything but, you know, this isn't true, it can't be true. And yet we've identified from this text the Medes, the Greeks, the Italians, Armenia, Iona, the beginning of the Greek people, Cyprus, Rhodes, Crete, Cyrene, Lydia, Libya, Italy, Spain, Gaul, Germany, Egypt, Ethiopia, Arabia, Syria, Yemen, Asia Minor, Ur, Uruk, Akkad, Sumeria, Mesopotamia, India, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Arabians, the Assyrians, the Sabaeans, the Phoenicians, and many, many more. We see them all right here. It's interesting that um, when you do uh, studies of ancient peoples, they usually go by archaeological um, findings and digs, and they look at things like pottery, right? Well, lately, in modern times, more modern times, in the 21st century, they're doing now DNA studies. And they're compiling these DNA data banks. And so, for example, there's about 3,500 specimens of DNA in Europe that they consider to be ancient Europeans. And by doing that, they can uh, examine when people came into the area. And this is contested because the the archaeologists don't like this. Because this proves a lot of their stuff wrong. And they just go by pottery and, and so forth. Uh, in fact, one um, uh, article in the Nature Journal uh, entitled The Battle for Common Ground, and it has the subtitle, Divided by DNA, the Uneasy Relationship Between Archaeology and Ancient Genomics. They're not liking each other. They're not agreeing. Uh, and it's uh, another uh, line from the article, two fields in the midst of, the techno- of a technological revolution are struggling to reconcile their views of the past. They don't agree. 
When I went to school, um, and I'm sure a lot of you who are my age and older, where, where did modern man come from? Where did, they, where did they teach you? I went to a public school. Where did they teach us that modern man came from? Remember? Mesopotamian Valley. The Mesopotamian Valley. That's where modern man came from. I remember between the Tigris and the Euphrates, this is where modern man came from, the Mesopotamian Valley. We all learned that in school in the 1970s and the 1980s. That's not true today. If you go to school today, where does modern man come from? Africa. Comes from Africa. It was East Africa. Then it was West Africa. Then it was South Africa. Now some people are saying it's Central Africa. It keeps moving around. Why? Well, the Mesopotamian Valley has actual concrete evidence of animal husbandry and agricultural husbandry and actual structures built by man. What are they finding in Africa? A bone fragment. A hip bone. Piece of a skull. And the archaeologists will say, this is 300,000 years old. This is the first modern bone man began here. No evidence. No structures. No evidence of animal husbandry. They're actually farming and doing things. Stuff that we can see and actually... No, no, no. A bone based upon the folly and disproven theory, and it is disproven. Science doesn't want to admit it yet. The disproven theory of evolution... That some bone in Africa proves that mankind started in Africa. No, mankind started in the Mesopotamian Valley right here about where Noah's Ark landed and the peoples go out. And you notice again how this chapter looks beyond chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, because it's looking to how, it's, yes, it starts with Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They get off the ark. But then we get their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren. And then we see how they're divided according to their languages, which actually doesn't happen until the flashback in chapter 11. But what I want you to notice, beloved, is the incredible accuracy of today's text. You could study chapter 10, get online, you could start studying this, and a lot of it's going to be, you know, uh, presumptive uh, modernistic evolutionary garbage. But you are going to find some true articles here and there where these things are admitted. And it's shown, oh, yes, look how accurate this is, yes. And how could Noah have known, or how could Moses have known this? And so forth. And so uh, this is the accuracy of the Bible. Secondly, I want you to notice the sinfulness of man. The sinfulness of man. How do we see that in this text? Well, we see that in this text in that, first of all, we know that they're sinners. We've seen the sin of Noah, his drunkenness. We've seen the, uh, and that, you know, that was a sin of the flesh, and it's gross, and it's obvious. He's lying unconscious. He's drunk so much that he's unconscious, you know, perhaps in his vomit. Who knows? It's just a shameful thing. But then the higher, more evil sin of Ham, because that's the sin of pride, right? The sin of, of vanity, and ambition and hating your father. And we can look really good when we put those sins on. They don't look so shameful. And whether or not Ham ever repented, we don't know. But then we see in their children here, this person named Nimrod. Look at it in the beginning in verse 8. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. The Hebrew word for mighty one is Gabor. We've seen this word before, back in chapter 6, verse 4. There were Nephilim on the earth in those days. I'm going to say it as it is, Nephilim, not giants. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the Gaborim, the mighty men. David's men are Gaborim, mighty men. A mighty man, mighty in good, valor, bravery, or mighty in wickedness, tyranny, abuse, violence. That just means mighty one. The context has to show you. Here, this one, 
Nimrod, he wants to be like those mighty men of the name. Men of the name. And we know that because Nimrod is the one who actually is in charge of the Tower of Babel. Babel was the beginning of his kingdom. Notice it. Why the beginning? Because God divides them from Babel and then he has to move on because nobody can understand each other. And he gathers his people around him and he begins to build these other cities, no doubt fortresses. Notice the first word that we are the first time we ever see the word kingdom in the Bible. Verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom. Here is the first tyrant, Nimrod. You know, we know what that word means in English, right? It's not very complimentary. He wanted to make a name for himself. He got it. Nimrod. And so did his people and his city, Babel, confusion. They wanted to be famous. They're famous for evil. Nimrod was a great tyrant, the father of tyrants. And so uh, wickedness were he and his people. And of course, We'll see it in chapter 11. It doesn't say there's no one not with them. Maybe the whole world. Maybe even Noah and his sons. It doesn't say anything else. Most Christian and Jewish scholars believe Noah and a few others were not there. Not part of, not swept up in this. But whatever the case may be, this is probably only 100 or 150 years after the flood. And by the way, man could have easily multiplied to 10 or 12,000 120 years after. 150 years, it could have been 30,000 people on the earth, the way they were multiplying. But what we see is this great wickedness in man. So much so that God has to bring a judgment upon them in order to not... Let them continue in their wickedness. And so the sinfulness of man continues. Thirdly, though, I want you to notice the faithfulness of God. Notice the faithfulness of God. This text, this chapter, is about the faithfulness of God. God said at the beginning of chapter 9, He blessed Noah and his sons, and He said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then in chapter 7, as for you, be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly and multiply on the earth. And our chapter shows that God was faithful to that blessing, that these peoples did multiply. They went out. Yes, their lifespan is greatly decreasing, but that means they're having children as early as 30. And in their 20s. So they're having children more rapidly. They're multiplying more rapidly. We see this massive multiplication of mankind. By the way, those DNA studies that I showed or talked about um, that are being done now of Europe and other places to try to trace modern man, they show evidence of a massive migration and influx of human beings from the east. From the east. That's where man came from. They show that. They prove that. This text again is true. But this is God's faithfulness to mankind. He said be fruitful and multiply. And they are fruitful and they multiply. And that's really important. It's really important to see that. Because we're going to notice in chapter 11. That the immediate occasion for man's scattering and, and spreading out is his sin. The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel and God judges man and they scatter. So it was a judgment of God that causes man to scatter and fill the earth, which is what God commanded them. It was a judgment of God on man's sin. That's the immediate reason. But the ultimate reason is chapter 10. God is blessing man. Don't lose that. Don't just jump to chapter 11. While the reason why it's sinful that we have nations, it's sinful that we have people because we sinned. And no, 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 it was, it was God's plan to do it that way. And it was the occasion of man's sin that God put his plan into action. But it was a mercy and it was a judgment that the nation spread out. The same thing we can say about the mark of Cain. The mark of Cain 
was a mercy on him that no one would kill him. But it was also a judgment on him. Everyone would be horrified from him. We see the same thing with the spreading out of the nations. Yes, it was a judgment on man. Man is so wicked that God has to scatter man so man won't uh, become, uh, you know, uh, supreme in wickedness. And yet, God is merciful and blesses man so that man really will fill up the earth. It's both a blessing and a judgment. But this text is the faithfulness of God. We see it and we see in man because of the spreading out, right? We see all this variety. I mean, look at all the variety that we have around us and all of our different, you know, the genetic makeup of man. Because Japheth goes up into Europe, basically, North and uh, Western Asia, we see a particular kind of people in Europe and West Asia, right? We see lighter skinned, we see lighter hair, lighter colored eyes, and, and straight hair. And then we see Ham basically going down into Africa. And we see darker skin. And we see coarse hair and darker hair and darker eyes. And then we see some of those descendants of Ham and Shem going into the Far East. And we see a different shape of eye, right? And a kind of hair that's dark but straight. And there's other physiological differences. And, and basically, you see these three groups, don't you? In fact, up until the last hundred years or so, if you would have studied, you know, the um, phenomenon of race, I don't even know if we're allowed to say the word race anymore. It's not a bad word if we just recognize that it's a way to describe observed differences in people. It doesn't make people different in some species way or it doesn't make them less at all. They're all, in fact, this chapter proves we're all one family. We're all brothers. They're all brothers going out. It proves the equality of man. Evolution can't do that. Evolution actually says certain people are less. Certain people are more primitive. Certain people are more ape-like. Christianity doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. One father had three sons. Every race is one race. Paul preached this in Acts 17, 26. And he has made, God has made from one blood... Every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. This chapter shows us that God cares. You know, it's, we get Japheth first. We get the shortest, only five verses for Japheth. That's because he's going to be out of the picture for the most part. We get Ham next because the peoples of Ham are Egypt. You know, Ethiopia, the Canaanites. Everybody that Israel is constantly interacting with. So we get a focus on Ham. And then Shem is last because Shem was the chosen people. And that's what history and God's focus is going to take off with next. But God cares about all these people. All these people have their languages, have their families, have their lands, and God knows who they are. And God is the one who gives them to them. And that's what Paul preached in Acts. Every people and tribe and tongue were the people of God ultimately in the beginning. And they scatter out according to their pre-appointed times, the times God had for them. And their lands, the lands God had for them. And these different nations arise and these differences in our physiology and no doubt in emotion and minds, man is different. But we all come from one family. It's interesting. I did some other studies. If you would do like study the average height of, of a man. I just tried to find something objective that I could trace. And men in China, the average height of a man right now in China is five foot six. In Thailand, another country in the Far East, 5.4. In East Timor, another country in the Far East, this is the shortest uh, man country, 5 foot 2. That's the average man, East Timor today. If you would look at the average man in Sweden, 
Finland, Norway, Netherlands, Denmark, the average man, the average height of a man in those countries is 5'11". All right? And what do we see? Again, these different groups going out carrying different genetic features that are going to come out. But that's part of the diversity that God built into the human genome, which would never have happened, which we would never see. This diversity that gives glory to God as we see all these different people and all these different people group. Again, at one time it was Caucasoid, which comes from the Caucasus, which said that you look like someone who comes from the Caucasus, light colored. And then there was Mongoloid, again, which is the Far Eastern group because the Mongols were the first people that they came in contact with. And the Negroid, which just means dark because that was, the, again, the other people group. But we see that reflected in reality. No one can deny it. And then we see this mixture too, don't we, in the Middle East because some of the Hamites and some of the Shemites and some of the Japhethites all stayed in the Middle East. And so you see all these different kinds of, you know, skin color and hair color and consistency in the Middle East and then different races arising as different groups interact, you know. And you get the um, uh, Americas where the American Indian tribes and then the Spanish coming over and a new race coming from that. All of that, again, just showing the faithfulness, the goodness of God and showing that man really is equal and entirely made in the image of God. And so fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the divine perspective I want you to notice the divine perspective. When any when any time you study any kind of discipline, especially things like history, you know, math is kind of it's got to be math, right? You can't make two plus two something other than it is. Well, I guess you can, but it doesn't work very long. You're not going to live very long that way. But history is different, right? When you study history, you typically have a purpose or you have a reason. You're wanting to look for something. Uh, You have a perspective. Everybody has a different perspective, right? That they bring. I want you to notice the divine perspective. Why is this chapter in the Bible? It does do the things that we've said, right? It shows the accuracy of the Bible. It shows the sinfulness of man. Man's sinning wherever he goes. They're still going somewhere and dying and sinning. And it's funny, all these people groups who all came from Noah, and they bring flood legends with them. There's almost 200 flood legends that have been identified, many of them in oral cultures, that all talk about some guy who, you know, built some kind of craft and lived after water came and wiped everybody out because the gods were angry. Uh, All of that is reflected, and yet none of them remember God. None of them continue to turn to God or worship. They're worried about their own stuff, their own buildings, as we'll see with the Tower of Babel. They want to make a name for themselves. And yet, God has a reason for including this chapter. Again, we saw that the focus is Japheth, Ham, Shem, because from now on, the people of God. And of course, why are the people of God even chosen? To bring salvation, to bring the seed. Remember, the seed of the woman is still the gospel at this time. The seed of the woman will come and undo the curse and save man. And that's what God is showing us in this chapter. That's what God is tracing through. All people are from God. This is the last time we'll get a focus on the whole human race. From here on out, it's going to be Israel. The end of chapter 11, it's Abraham. And then we get one people that we're focused mostly on. But all these nations do belong to God. And all these nations are not forgotten of God. I want you to notice that. You know, if you count in this chapter, there are 70 nations. The rabbis call it the original 70 nations of the world. The 70 nations that went out that God gave Uh, to the world that God did in his plan. And in fact, Deuteronomy speaks of it, that it was according to the number of the sons of Israel, Deuteronomy 32, 8, when the Most High divided their inheritances 
to the nation. So this was clearly God's plan. When he separated the sons of Adam, listen to this. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. Okay. How many people went into Israel? The children of Israel. The children, Jacob is Israel. Seventy, according to the book of Genesis. Seventy people went into Israel. Genesis 46, 27. And the sons of Joseph were born to him in Egypt were two persons. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Now there's something else that's interesting. There are 70 nations in this text in the Hebrew. There are 72 nations in the Septuagint Greek. Okay. And there are in the number of children that went down to Egypt, scholars argue, when it says two were born to Joseph in Egypt and all the persons who went down were 70, was it 70 total or was it 72? So you have the same question of the number of the children of Israel that went to Egypt. Was it 70 or 72? Interestingly, Israel has 70 elders in Exodus 24. And in Numbers eleven twenty-five, God calls the 70 elders to bear some of the spirit of Moses, remember? But two of the elders remain in the camp. And when the spirit falls on the 70, they prophesy. But Eldad and Medad, who were the two who remained at the camp, they prophesy. And so again, you get this question, was it 70 or was it 72? And I say that to say that when Jesus sends out in the gospel of Luke, and Luke's the only one who includes it, in in Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70. Why did he do that? Because he's showing that the gospel is for all the world. There were 70 nations. Oh, by the way, there's a pretty weighty manuscript uh, discrepancy in Luke chapter 10 that says 72. Isn't that even the, even the question that we have is repeated down through the text as if God is saying to us in every way that the purpose of this chapter is that God is the God of the nations. And that this is the true history and source of the nations. And none of this other nonsense about people turning from apes. And that Jesus is the savior of the nations. That's what we see when we look at this text. Jesus is the savior of the nations. His gospel goes out to all the nations. He sent out the 70 so that we wouldn't miss it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord God, that your word does teach us something about who you are and it shows itself to be true father this text again difficult for us we don't remember we don't recognize these people but let us never forget lord god that this is where we all came from that this does show us the truth of our history so many people today running around trying to know who they are where they came from why are they here and here we have it right here in genesis 10 we all came from the sons of noah We went to the various places that we did according to your plan. And the goal and our purpose should be to find you and to live for you wherever we are. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you came, you gave your gospel to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you even showed that forth in sending out 70 disciples. We thank you for that. Help us to believe and help us to bear witness to the the Savior of the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.